From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Schools in Mesa County are closed again today because of a virus making people sick. We'll get an update on the health department's investigation. Then, looking beyond impeachment, Republican Representative Scott Tipton talks about goals, from trade to helping veterans and fighting the opioid crisis. And to make sure that we have the tools available, not just in Denver, but down into Pueblo in the San Luis Valley on the west slope of Colorado. Plus, kids in drag. One father says it's the outlet his child needs. Your options really are to nurture it and cherish it and, and listen, or to crush your kid and, and, like, hurt them. And so if those are the choices, it's pretty easy to, to choose between those. And we take a detour into the future of music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Kids in Mesa County haven't been in school since Wednesday after the district took the extremely rare step of closing all of its more than 40 campuses to try to stop the spread of an infectious gastrointestinal illness sweeping through the area. Health officials say this could be norovirus. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has been tracking this from the very beginning. She joins me now from Grand Junction. Hi, Stina. Hi, Avery. Before we go any further, I feel like we should warn listeners we're going to talk about vomit. Yeah, so a lot. And uh, I would say I'm sorry about that, but I'm just so used to talking about throw up now. (laughs) So it seems like this is an extraordinary step shutting down a whole school district. What led up to that decision? So it's been this ongoing thing. I mean, it really started last week around Wednesday. There were a few public, uh, a few instances of public vomiting at Palisade High School. And that one of them happened, or well, three of them actually happened at a rehearsal for the school musical. I spoke with senior Liliana Flanagan. She was at the rehearsal. She was a choreographer. And uh, she she was there when a dancer started vomiting all of a sudden. And then a few minutes later, his partner started to feel sick, too. About five-ish minutes later, she's sitting and she gets up and just runs the trash can right where um, the other dancer was and just starts vomiting. And it was, and by the end, they were both like laying on the floor in the fetal position. And it was, it looked incredibly uncomfortable. So the next day, hundreds of students and staff called out sick at Palisade High School and it closed for the rest of the week. Then this week alone, Basically, new closures every day in Grand Junction and Fruitvale and Clifton. And then on Wednesday, the district decided for the first time in its history that they think to close all 46 schools due to illness. What is the district doing while it's closed to to try to get a handle on this? Well, you know, basically, it's just a lot of cleaning. And they would be cleaning anyway during a holiday break. They're getting a two-day jump on it now. But also, they're giving extra care to disinfecting surfaces. And they're probably using different cleaners, a lot of bleach-based cleaners, to clean those surfaces. And, you know, in the meantime, they're still trying to take care of business for students. They've got their free mobile food unit running. It's called the Lunch Lizard. And it's going into the community for kids, you know, who rely on those free and reduced lunches every day. What's the latest on the illness? Do we know for sure if it's norovirus? So we don't. Uh, What we know is that it's presenting like norovirus. It's got about 12 to 24 hours of this ferocious vomiting. 
Um, and there is talk of a second strain that also includes a fever on top of the vomiting, but it's really that vomiting that's the main marker. That sounds so uncomfortable. And why do we not know for sure if it's noro? So it requires testing, and it's not just like any testing. They don't, you know, it's not just uh, they, you know, they swab your tongue. It needs a stool sample, and it's a stool sample taken while you're sick. And I think that's just a really hard sell for people to offer that up. Um, and also the virus isn't bad enough that kids are going to the hospital. So there's no one at the hospital to request that stool sample, and they have not received any volunteers. Is it a problem that they haven't nailed down the specific virus? You know, it doesn't seem to be. I, I don't think they're worried. Even if, they, even if they never know for sure what it is, they're going to take the same steps to prevent it. You know, the same precautions, washing your hands, uh, also, you know, cleaning up uh, services with bleach-based cleaners as well. Are there any ideas why there are so many kids getting sick? Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically geography. I mean, the schools that were closing uh, last week and this week, they were mostly in the Palisade and Clifton area. And a lot of them were feeder schools for one another. One another. So you had, you know, siblings that were going to several schools and taking the illness back home with them. So it makes sense that this would all be shared in one, you know, geographic area. Um, and also, it's just that it's so contagious. And these public vomiting episodes are, you know, they're like spectacularly contagious. You have this illness sort of blasted through a small space like a classroom, and everyone, you know, is could be affected. I was talking to Heidi Dragu. She's, she's with the Mesa County Public Health. And she says, if someone throws up near you, as long as you're within a 25-foot radius, you're at risk. Lots of those particles get put out into the air, um, and then those particles can actually, like, get onto other people's um, faces and in their mouth, and then you swallow that, and it makes you sick. And, you know, what's crazy is that if one of those droplets lands on a surface, if you don't clean that with an appropriate cleaner, they can stay contagious for months. Stina, you're in Grand Junction. What's it like right now? Is everyone talking about this? Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard people talk about it all sorts of places. I heard people talking about it at a bar last night. One woman had had three of her kids, all three of her kids sick. Some folks are calling it the Palisade Plague. And people are either, you know, feeling really lucky they've escaped it or expressing the sense of resignation that it got them. Uh, on social media, I saw this one woman say that getting the illness was like flipping a switch. You know, one minute she was fine, and the next minute she was vomiting. Oof. What happens next? Well, you know, just a lot of cleaning, like I said. I mean, and you have to do that with products that fight neurovirus. Also, you know, the schools are going to be closed anyway for Thanksgiving break, and they're going to reopen in early December. So they're hoping that that span of time, you know, a little bit more than a week, will not only give them chances to clean, but also just to get kids away from one another. Um, in the meantime, health officials, they're actually asking people, you know, maybe carry a paper uh, face mask with you and maybe some rubber gloves just in case you come in, come in contact with someone who's vomiting because it happens so quickly. You know, you need to have supplies or something to protect yourself in that moment. And what about parents? How are they reacting to the closure? You know, I think they're mostly glad. I haven't heard anything negative. You know, as rare as this is, it's only adding an extra two days to the Thanksgiving break. So it's actually kind of a convenient time. I spoke with Jacob Gallagher as he was picking up his kids from Chapita Elementary School on Wednesday, and he said, you know, he's relieved by the shutdown you know, after seeing how fast this illness has been spreading. It's getting really scary. It's going all the way out to Fruita now, and 
I'm just glad that it hasn't hit this school where my kids are yet. So, Stina, thank you so much. Thank you. That's CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg, who's been covering the illness that's shut down schools throughout Mesa County. With the impeachment inquiry in full throat, it might be hard to focus on anything else happening in politics. But as 2019 comes to an end, CPR News is reaching out to the members of the Colorado congressional delegation to get their thoughts on this session, as well as the ramp up to 2020. It promises to be an eventful year both locally and nationally. Scott Tipton is a Republican congressman representing the state's third district. Representative Tipton, welcome to the program. Avery, good to be with you. Before we get into the subject of the impeachment inquiry, and it may be hard to separate this from the inquiry, I'd like to begin with how 2019 changed for you as a congressman. Before this year, you had been a member of the Republican-controlled House. That changed after the 2018 midterm elections when Democrats seized the majority. What did that mean for you specifically, say, in areas like committee work and getting bills passed? You know, we certainly saw that Speaker Pelosi had reduced the number of members on various committees. And... We're staying focused generally in terms of the issues that are going to be important to our district. We've been very proud on the legislation when we were in the majority that we were able to pass through the House, through committees, and ultimately to be able to get not only President Obama's signature, but President Trump's as well. On legislation that we've been able to pass, we've had bipartisan support. And so that's something that uh, we continue to work on and uh, to be able to advocate for. And uh, we hope that the leadership out of the Democrat Party will actually do what they said they would like to do, and that's to be able to have bipartisan legislation uh, to be able to work on behalf of our communities, our states, and our country. And one of the talking points surrounding Congress this year is the idea that the Democratic-controlled House has passed hundreds of bills that have stalled in the Republican-controlled Senate. Do you agree with that assessment, and how frustrating has it been for you? Let me give you one good example. I think something that impacts an awful lot of our seniors and just general family members as well, are prescription drug prices. We had legislation which came out of the Energy and Commerce Committee with broad bipartisan support. Speaker Pelosi then, before the bill got to the floor, amended that bill, putting in some poison pills that they were able to pass through the House, but it'll go nowhere in the Senate. We had bipartisan support. Just put that bill on the floor. Let's allow it to be able to move forward. We've got the importance of being able to actually have good trade agreements to be able to support our farmers, our ranchers, our businesses in the state of Colorado. Let's pass USMCA. If she puts it on the floor, it will pass. We'll get Republican and Democrat support. It is being held up right now. So we'd encourage the speaker, let's have a good balanced approach uh, to that legislation, be able to get it not only through the House, but through the Senate and on the president's desk for signatures. Now, I want to get into one of those areas that you mentioned. Uh, It's an area that's been pushed to the background, as it were, because of impeachment, the tariff war in China. You represent a very rural area of Colorado, which includes farming and agricultural interests that have been hurt by the machinations between Washington and Beijing. I know you would like China to be held accountable in areas like human rights and intellectual property theft. But how do you reconcile that with the troubles people in your district may be going through? You know, and that's bipartisan. I think Republicans and Democrats point to those specific issues you just mentioned in regards to dealing with China. We need to make sure that we have good trade agreements to be able to address them. We just had an agreement that was signed with Japan, which is going to be able to benefit the Colorado cattle industry, to be able to work with Australia. We've had Mexico pass the approval of USMCA. 
Canada is waiting on the United States to be able to pass it before they move. It will pass the House of Representatives and I believe go through the Senate and get a presidential signature if it's just going to be brought to the floor. So this is taking a look in legislation that can and will pass if it's simply put on the floor. Uh, we don't put in poison pills that are going to break us into individual camps. Let's make sure we're working on behalf of the people, our communities, and our jobs. You mentioned the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. It's been a year since that free trade agreement was signed. The pact was regarded as a big win for farmers and ranchers along with other businesses, but it still hasn't been ratified by Congress. Why not? Uh, Simply put, it cannot be ratified until such time as Speaker Pelosi is willing to be able to put the bill on the floor. Uh, We'll vote for the bill. Uh, We've put in a lot of commentary into Secretary Ross in regards to the reciprocal agreement that we've had, which impacts our district directly in the San Luis Valley for potato exports going down into Mexico. We hope that'll be included, but we will vote for that legislation. We supported also uh, the agreements uh, to be able to make sure that the steel operations that are in Pueblo, Colorado, are not going to be impacted by some of the tariffs that were going to be put into place. So we've made some good positive moves forward. The Speaker just needs to put the bill on the floor. Let's vote on it. It will pass. It will go to the Senate, and I believe it will pass as well, and the President will sign it. Now, a lot of what you're talking about is bipartisan work. Where is the solution, in your opinion, to breaking through the current morass in D.C.? I think probably one of the more frustrating things that many of us have at home and certainly in Washington is we've got to be able to look at the bigger picture to make sure that we're working on behalf of all of our constituencies. And you don't have to drive points that may not be able to pass through both houses. And so I'll speak on behalf of our delegation in regards to Colorado issues. Uh, We have uh, pretty much great unanimity in terms of our approach Uh, to making sure that we're standing up for Colorado. We'd like to be able to see that replicated on the national level. How much responsibility does Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, have in all this? Uh, You know, Leader McConnell certainly uh, has a very big role to be able to play, and I think he's probably looking at it through some of the same prism that we're seeing that's coming out of the House. Just put forward legislation that we can agree on to be able to get it to the president's desk, We'd had the reverse experience with Harry Reid, where we'd passed bills that came out of the House of Representatives that were dead on arrival in the Senate. So it's making sure we've got that good moderated approach uh, to be able to make sure that those bills can move through both houses. I think everyone understands you aren't going to get 100% of what you want. Now, as you look back on 2019, where are your successes? I can think of things like broadband for rural areas. Yeah, that's certainly something that's very important for our areas. You know, when we get down into the San Luis Valley, we have counties that still don't have adequate, probably, dial-up service. This is something that used to be a luxury. It has now become a necessity for not only economic development, but also for health care, for our communities to be able to grow. We put forward legislation uh, to be able to eliminate some of the barriers on the federal end in terms of making sure that broadband is going to be able to be expanded throughout all of our rural areas and to be able to get that connectivity. Working very hard, obviously, on veterans' issues. Uh, We have one of the highest per capita veteran populations in the United States in the 3rd Congressional District. Do a lot of casework of introduced legislation to be able to give them better access to ambulance care and also dental care to be able to help our veterans and those people that have been willing to stand up for this country. 
we're forward-looking in terms of some of the new challenges that our veterans are facing coming back from the wars in Iraq and Iran uh, that we're dealing with right now, uh, burn pit legislation, which is certainly impacting them, and making sure that we're fulfilling the commitments that we've made to people willing to put their lives on the line for this country. We're also continuing to focus on the opioid crisis. Originally, the two hot spots in Colorado happened to be in our district. In terms of some of the opioid crisis in the country, we've held over 30 roundtables trying to be able to address it and to be able to seek local solutions. was very pleased my bill, the Alto Act, was passed, signed into law, and we're now starting to see some real positive movements in terms of addressing and creating awareness of the opioid crisis in the country. And we continue to focus a lot on our access to our public lands, making sure that all voices are being heard on something that we cherish and want to be able to protect. Now, as we said earlier, it's clear the impeachment inquiry is dominating the headlines these days, so I certainly don't want to overlook that. What are your thoughts on what's transpired so far? You know, at this point, I just listened and the hearing with Ambassador Sundlin. We are dealing with secondhand information, as he ultimately testified Have we had anything that rises to the level of high crime and misdemeanor? I do not see that. The focus of this Congress ought to be on making sure that we're keeping this economy moving, keeping jobs being created for our local communities, making sure that we're trying to be able to address and be able to lower health care costs for individuals in our country, as well as prescription drugs, dealing with some of the challenges that we have, as I noted, in regards to opioids, fulfilling those commitments to our veterans, And uh, we've seen a moving bar in terms of some of the investigations uh, to where uh, first it was going to be uh, Russian collusion. Uh, That did not work out. Then ultimately it started to move to quid pro quo. Now that's being moved to bribery. And we have yet to see anyone come forward and say with direct firsthand knowledge this was a demand that was made. And I think when ultimately we look at Ukraine, They did receive the aid. There were no investigations that were conducted on either former Vice President Biden or his son that are currently even taking place. So my opinion right now is is they have not reached that high crime and misdemeanor level uh, for an investigation or an impeachment of the president. Now, hypothetically speaking, is it wrong for a president to ask a foreign country to investigate a political rival? I think if you're putting it in a rival standpoint, We need to look at it also from the standpoint, if there was a crime that was being committed or pressure that was being applied, is that also worthy of investigation? Irregardless of whether somebody chooses to or not run for the highest office in the land. When we look at Burisma, this was actually being looked into prior to any of the hearings that are going on right now. And Vice President Sun was obviously in business with and was director for Burisma and receiving a significant amount of money for going. So I think there are two ways that you can certainly look at that. And I think what we're seeing probably right now in the country is, uh, depending on which uh, political party you're in, uh, you're going to take a stand on that side. But uh, when we do look simply at the facts, uh, we do have a legal obligation to make sure that we are rooting out corruption, particularly when we're going to be using American taxpayer dollars when it comes to aid. In closing, I am wondering, what is the most important thing that you want to accomplish in 2020? You know, a lot of our goal is to be able to make sure that 
we're getting our economy really working and moving within the third congressional district. I've often commented we've had a tale of two economies in Colorado, uh, where a lot of our resort areas, metropolitan areas have done very well. We are now seeing recovery. We are seeing some economic growth throughout the third congressional district, which is good news. We need to keep that moving, and we're going to continue to be able to work on issues that are going to be able to benefit our small businesses, our farmers, our ranchers, to be able to address that, to be able to protect our water in the third congressional district, to continue to work on the opioid crisis and to make sure that we have the tools available and where it's appropriate for the federal government to participate, that those are going to be available not just in Denver, but down into Pueblo in the San Luis Valley on the west slope of Colorado to be able to have those resources and working on the veterans as well. We're currently in the process of continuing to work on something that's important in our district of Good Samaritan legislation in terms of abandoned mine cleanup to be able to address those issues as well. Representative Tipton, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Avery. Good to visit with you. Scott Tipton has represented Colorado's 3rd Congressional District since 2011. He joined us to discuss his year in the legislature as well as what may be on tap in 2020. CPR News is reaching out to all members of the Colorado Congressional Delegation for similar conversations. A former airplane hangar at the Stanley Marketplace is filled for the season with a massive exhibition. It's called Camp Christmas. It's jam-packed with eye candy, but pay close attention and you'll also learn about how Christmas has evolved. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us inside. Artist Lonnie Hanson remembers family outings to see the department store holiday window displays in downtown Denver. Raised outside of Pine, he says he loved how Christmas transformed the big city. I would imagine that all the stoplights were actually part of the Christmas decorations because they were red and green and yellow. So I was just like fascinated by all that light and magic. And I was one of those kids with their face against the glass of the department store windows. But department store windows have nothing on the lavish and massive Camp Christmas. Hands-On created it in partnership with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts and has called it a sort of, quote, wild selfie palace. We're trying to build something that both can be just fun and lots of decorations and ooey-gooey stuff to look at on one end and at the other end, actual, you know, good storytelling and narrative. There is a lot of ooey-gooey. Hands-On estimates somewhere between three to 4,000 ornaments. We have 42 decorated trees in the show. And there's something like, I don't know, a thousand feet of garland or something. Plus at least 1,200 Santa tchotchkes. Hands-On and his team already had quite the merry collection to pull from. They've created holiday installations like Houston Zoo Lights and floats for Denver's Parade of Lights. We've been doing Christmas for a very long time, so we had a very, very large junk pile. Camp Christmas is campy. But you also get a field guide, like a camper, to learn about Yuletide traditions through the years like goose feather Christmas trees in the Victorian section, or seeing how Santa evolved into the form we know today. Charlie Miller is the curator for DCPA's Off-Center Division. What you discover is that since the beginning, humans have wanted to find light in the darkness, to find warmth and community in the coldest time of year, and that's really cool to get to see how the celebrations evolve. Artist Lonnie Hanson hopes it all comes off as magical. I think the magical moments in our life are the actually some of the most honest and real moments of our life. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Up next, something's brewing in the Colorado beer business. What will it mean for consumers when it comes to quality? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. If you have a vehicle you don't want to keep and don't want to sell, consider donating it to CPR to fuel the programs you rely on. Start the easy donation process on the support page at CPR.org. Will the beer taste as good? Consumers may be wondering with the likely sale of craft brewer New Belgium based in Fort Collins. That news came not long after Molson Coors announced that it's moving its headquarters from Denver to Chicago. Ed C. Lover covers this beer biz for the Denver Business Journal and spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Is this a chaotic moment for Colorado's beer industry? Well, it's a chaotic moment for the beer industry in general, and I think it just happens to have hit two Colorado icons here within the past month. Um, there's been a lot of shakeup around the world at this point. Consumers' tastes are changing greatly. They're moving away from the lighter and lager styles that have defined beer for the last 80 years, and that's causing companies like Molson Coors to have to relook at their portfolio and readjust after years of declining production. Meanwhile, At the same time that consumers are moving to beers like those that New Belgium makes, there are more and more of these breweries popping up across the country. More than 7,600 of them exist right now. And so for the people that were early adopters of the craft brewing craze and drank beers like New Belgium, wherever they could get their hands on it, they're now often turning to local beers. And so companies like New Belgium are having trouble sustaining sales across the United States and are looking for other outlets, in this case, an international market. The company that is buying New Belgium is Australian-based Lion Little World Beverages, uh, which is in turn owned by Kieran. That's a brand folks may know. So it sounds like this benefits the big guys because they buy into an aspect of the market that's popular. And it's good for little guys or littler guys like New Belgium because they, they get a savior. In some ways, yes. I mean, uh, a company like Lion, for example, Lion has substantial presence in in Asia and and in Europe and said we don't have a lot of presence in North America right now. This really gets them a foothold. New Belgium is the fourth largest craft brewery in the United States. For someone like New Belgium, it gives them, A, a a much bigger bankroll. New Belgium, I don't think, was hurting anyway for a lack of cash. I mean, this is a company that has breweries open in both Fort Collins and outside of Asheville, North Carolina. But... uh, At this point, they get somebody with much deeper pockets that has an entree into the international scene, uh, and they'll be able to bankroll new projects and get out to a wider audience. Now, the trick is this. How are Colorado consumers and, frankly, American craft beer consumers going to react to this? Now, we've seen a lot of acquisitions from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and typically when AB InBev buys a craft brewery, that craft brewery loses fans in droves. Uh, AB InBev is 
viewed as the devil in the craft brew industry. And so when a company like a Wicked Weed or even locally a Brackenridge was purchased by AB InBev, a lot of folks stopped drinking them. We haven't seen the same reaction to European breweries coming in and buying, well, frankly, like buying Avery Brewing uh, locally or Founders Brewing or some of the other big name American craft breweries. There, there hasn't been such a, uh, a repulsion by American craft brewers for that. This is really the first entree, though, we've seen from uh, an unknown Asian company. Are people going to take this more like uh, international corporate companies buying New Belgium or like, okay, uh, I guess we'll go on with life as it's been? Right, because Lion Little World is based in Australia, but Kieran is an Asian brand. Certainly, yes, and, and neither Australian nor Asian conglomerates have had a big say in buying American breweries yet. So you can't say for sure whether there's going to be a consumer revolt. I can't, I mean, just because there's not really precedent to what we've seen right now. New Belgium gets its fans, both from the people that like its beer and from people that like its environmental ethos. This is a company that's powered 100% by wind-based energy, and people who like that are likely going to continue buying New Belgium because that isn't going to change. But people who are set on uh, buying American-owned beer, Colorado-owned beer, may think twice about this. New Belgium is also an employee-owned brewery. Uh, incidentally, a concept that Governor Jared Polis signed an executive order to encourage more of. My understanding is that New Belgium employees, roughly 300 of them in Colorado, will do well under this deal. Yeah, the initial letter from New Belgium co-founder Kim Jordan said that the employee owners of the company will be getting at least $100,000 out of this deal, and in some cases more. Certainly if you're higher up, if you own a bigger percentage, if you've been there longer. What's really interesting about this, though, is it's really odd to see an employee-owned company going this route. This is essentially why employee-owned companies come about, so that they can't be acquired and have their intellectual property moved out of the state. Um, now, Governor Jared Polis, who set up the Employee Ownership Commission that's really pushing this concept across Colorado, uh, interestingly put some comments on a Denver Post story about this sale in which he lauded New Belgium and said, this is why people go employee-owned. Look at how it's going to benefit their employees. Employees have to sign off on this, I gather. Absolutely. Employees have to sign off on this. And that's, uh, Kim Jordan again mentioned that in the letter, that it has to be approved like uh, by the employees. I am guessing she has already smoothed the waters for that. Let's try to answer the question we began with, Ed C. Lover. Will the beer taste as good? When there are these kinds of acquisitions, in other words, do they maintain the product line? Do they maintain the practices of making beer? Or does it become a wholesale change? There should be no difference in the taste of the beer. The beer will continue to be made in Fort Collins and in North Carolina. And in that sense, there's no difference. However, when a company is acquired by a larger international company, there is going to be a focus on making the beer that can sell to the largest market audience. So if you're a fan of, say, Fat Tire or some of New Belgium's recent experiments into lighter ales, there will be no difference. If you're a fan of some of their rarer beers, I'm guessing we're not going to see any kind of significant cutback, but I'm guessing that's also not where Lion wants the focus to be. Might it be a little more risk-averse, in other words? 
if not risk averse, and, and I know some of the, the brewers at New Belgium, they are certainly very happy to take risks, but it might be just dedicating more resources to finding the next big beer that can sell on the international market rather than finding the next barrel-aged sour that's going to appeal to American craft beer aficionados. Ed, thanks so much for chatting with us again. Thank you for having me on. Ed Sealover covers the beer biz for the Denver Business Journal. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. This Sunday, the monthly Drag for All Ages show in Denver returns. It's consistently prompted protests, but CPR's Alexandra McMahon found it can be an important outlet for LGBTQ youth. On a recent Saturday morning at Hamburger Mary's, one of Denver's gay bars, drag queens Jessica Lahore and felony misdemeanor are getting ready for brunch. I'd say the only difference I notice is that your contour on top of it is not as blended out as when you use your other foundation. The pair is hosting the regular Divas Brunch at the bar, a raunchy event with music, jokes, games, and a lot of alcohol. It's a very different vibe from another event Lahore hosts as Miss Jessica, Drag for All Ages at Mile High Comics. It's a monthly drag show that's much more family-friendly, she says. The All Ages show provides a space for kids to feel safe, comfortable, and okay with asking questions or being who they would really like to be or not questioning who they could be in a negative way. So many parents will come up to me after the show and be like, I didn't know how to connect with my child to support them. The show is for kids like 10-year-old Sassolina Bluechild. We're using her drag name because she and her dad know not everyone agrees with what they're doing. There are protesters at the All Ages show. And if I say, like, what school I go to or my real name, it's really risky. We have some friends that we've made online who have uh, had to move or have to have security when they perform because they've been followed, etc. And are controversial only by being children who like to perform. And those protests Sassolina mentioned have been happening at every show since it started in March. A couple months ago, a fight even broke out between protesters and counter-protesters before the show. That led to an increase in security in the form of the Parasol Patrol, volunteers who shield the children with rainbow umbrellas and headphones. Sassolina says she first started doing drag when she was eight, after attending a Christmas-themed show and watching the hit series RuPaul's Drag Race. And then I started stealing my siblings and mom's makeup and, like, putting together little looks. Sassolina was always very gender-diverse, as it were, non-binary, boy and girl stuff. So I think her mom knew earlier than I did, but there was a, a time that I was getting ready for a performance that where I was going to be in a ballet, and I was trying something on, and it was going to involve a corset. The sass walked in and, like, saw it and was like, wow. From there, Sassolina started performing in drag at the few all-ages events offered in Colorado, until Miss Jessica's show came along. Her dad says having a space like the all-ages show is so important. When you have a kid who's not fitting into those binaries or who's moving from one to another, that like your, your options really are to nurture it and cherish it and, and listen or to crush your kid and like hurt them. And so if those are the choices, it's pretty easy to, to choose between those. What's your favorite part of doing drag? 
Like, is it the hair? Is the, it the social time. Oh, the social time. Tell me more about that. I've been, like, an extrovert almost my whole life. So I feel, I feel better. Every month, Sasselina, with the help of her family, comes up with a new look for the show. I basically take the song, think about maybe what other drag queens might do, see if my mom can, like, maybe make it. Last time, it was Halloween-themed. Sasselina went as Maleficent, complete with a staff and horns. I, yeah, I love the horns. That's really... Yes. It's literally duct tape, headband, and pool noodles. And her family is always in the crowd, ready to cheer her on. The happiest moments for me are watching Sass on stage, and when she comes out and the music's on and the character arrives, and both my reaction and the rest of the crowd's reaction to her is just so awesome. That just, that, that's awesome. Sassolina Blue Child performs along with other drag queens and kings of all ages at Mile High Comics this Sunday. I'm Xander McMahon, CPR News. What will music sound like 100 years from now? Maybe something like this? and the new art exhibit from Denver artist Thomas Evans, who goes by the name Detour. It centers around a fictional band from the future called the Five Pointers. Evans recruited four local musicians to write and perform as the band. The exhibit features Five Pointers memorabilia, including posters, awards, and some interactive musical instruments in a museum setting. Detour's Five Pointers is open now at Denver's Redline Art Center. Thomas and Five Pointers member Venus Cruz join us now. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Thomas, the driving idea for this project was that you wanted to get out of your comfort zone. How does the Five Pointers show achieve that? The Five Pointers show really sort of combines a lot of the different mediums that I've used, but also includes the new medium of storytelling, fabrication, and actually working with musicians to sort of create a band, you know, the Five Pointers, having this story told about local history in the future. So for me, it was a a way of getting outside my comfort zone because I never did that before. I never sort of tried to create characters that you wanted to root for, never tried to make a museum, you know, have these artifacts and how to make these artifacts sort of art at the same time. So for me, it was a, a big challenge, but something that I was really excited about. So in this project, you're collaborating with a lot of different people, including Denver singer Venus Cruz, who plays the role of Lola Devine. Venus, how did you get involved? I was asked, and I was it was I was so excited to be asked because I happen to be working with some incredible musicians from the Denver scene who have roots here, who um, find this subject matter meaningful. You know, to think about this future, to exist in this future, and what survives, and does the love song survive? Where do we fit this music that is uh, about time, and uh, what survives? Tell me about your character. Who is Lola Devine? Lola 
has been a singer for quite some time, <laughs> you see. Uh, but uh, Lola has her own experience and, and her own story with music and how she got to it and how she divorced herself from it and how this band got gets back together at a very crucial time in, in everyone's lives. Um, I, I essentially become a musicologist and anthropologist and I have to ask myself these questions of uh, does the love song make it? What is meaningful? And how do we create music that is meaningful, that is not heavy-handed, but really tells a story and uh, that uh, is shareable? I love that idea, that this idea that things that can happen in the future, they're going to impact music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The exhibit, it takes place, like we've said, in the year 2119. Thomas, you've said you wanted to bridge the gap between the present and the future with this show. Why do that through music? For me, it was a way of including a lot of what I do. So the interactive art that I do and a way to bring in a lot of the people that I wanted to work with, like Venus. Um, also, you know, I had this character, King Temple, played by Damien Hines, and this character, Wexa Bayo, played by Felix Fastford, and Carl Remington, played by Carl Correll. So, like, a way to sort of bring this sort of Avengers musicians together, but then also bridge, you know, the past and the present in a way that was really unique, that made people really interested in sort of investigating the, the pieces more. So it's sort of like you're walking into the space and you're, Sort of like an anthropologist or like a, a person that just discovers history in the present time of a history that hasn't been actually created yet. So it leaves you to sort of ask questions about what does the future hold? What cities are gone because of flooding? What's the climate change? Where are people moving? What's the migration pattern? And that informs us on what the sounds will be in the future, what topics will people talk about, How? what's the gap between rich and poor? How does that sort of affect the expression that people have? So for me, it was a really interesting way of how do I f find what people want to express in the future and why is that? So like I said, I had to sort of like, you know, do a little bit of research or just like creative storytelling in terms of what's happening, where are people moving? So like the character King Tempo came from New Orleans because learning about how New Orleans is in a bowl and like the flooding that happens, like, is that city sustainable in a hundred years? So you're really inviting people into this future world, but you're also teasing out threads of things that we already see today, both the good and serious mm -hmm. issues like climate change and displacement. Um, and you do that not just by collaborating and creating characters, but you've also created these artifacts. Um, and the exhibit, it includes a newspaper dated <laughs> 100 years from now in December. Yeah. And it reports, like you said, New Orleans is 60% underwater. People receive 3D printed organ transplants. Denver yeah. is the site of a protest that leads <laughs> dozens of casualties where did these ideas come from these articles are really detailed yeah it's uh it was a way to distribute information during the show and before the show to get people in the mindset of where they're at almost like the current state in a hundred years so it was a fun way of like actually figuring out okay i can create a newspaper and have that be sort of like the unique way of communicating information in the future, even though it's like we see it all the time today. But um, having sort of those stories for me was a way to sort of build a foundation, a framework, and then a way to be creative in terms of what, what else is happening, like the 3D printed organs. You know, we see that today, but that's something that is really possible 100 years from now that would be like, oh, you expect that. Where when I was creating the, the stories, I had to think back 100 years before on what we thought was almost impossible, but now it's like, 
you have a phone in your hand that has basically your entire life. A hundred years ago, that was sort of like thought of as impossible. So it's trying to bridge the gap between, you know, what's reality and sort of what is actually possible was like one of the, the goals. Now, I want to know more about the band as well. There are four characters. They all have backstories. We've heard a little bit about Lola Devine. Venus, tell me about your bandmates. They're incredible musicians that are have made a serious impact in the Denver music scene. And I've been a witness and a lucky witness to it all. I've been playing with Damien Hines for uh, our percussionist and drummer for many, many years, including an African band with Dr. Greg Denner-Ayers. I'm also joined by the great Felix Fastford, who I've been seeing since he was five years old. The boy genius. <laughs> I've uh, had the, throughout the years, the great opportunity to play with him in a variety of ways and witness his talent and Car Carell is new in my life but I've been a fan and so Thomas has really created this band and we are exploring it differently and we are getting to know each other in a different way because we are talking about this very serious subject that is an art show um, so our writing it's got its curves and we're learning all this fabricated instrumentation and it's been it's going to be very cool. Thomas, you created futuristic instruments for this band. You're not a musician per se. I imagine it's difficult to invent new musical instruments. Tell oh, me yeah. about what they're playing. <laughs> so I created uh, like this drum set for King Tempo, Damien's character, and this. This drum set I wanted to be sort of like really traditional, almost primitive in a way where it's like hand drums, but it's re- it's like digital, so it's like really MIDI controllers that you're sort of working with, so you're able to create different sounds on it. But it feels like hand drums, and it also has that Bourbon Street live performance, people surrounding you sort of feel because there's these three tall drums that you're playing, and it sits in a semicircle. So that's what I sort of wanted for for Damien's characters have this almost like a drum set where it's like you're living in it. For Felix's character, I created the harp. I never really had the experience to touch a harp or like experience a harp. So I was like, this would be like a great instrument to sort of tackle. And Felix is like one that loves like the string instruments that I create. So like this is one where I was like, let me create something really big that sort of stands out and has like this grandiose sort of feel when you sing it and you sort of want to like jump on it. And it's like, it feels like an actual person. This instrument is a personality. So that's what I wanted to create for Felix. And then this sort of synth painting for Carl is like an abstract painting that I do but adding sort of like this 3D element to it to where it's like you can take it off the walls, lay it down flat, and actually play it like a synth beat pad machine or a turntable in a way. All these weird instruments uh, that came out of like, oh, let me see if this would work. And actually, you know, putting it into fruition or creating it and then figuring out how do I sort of build it. And then for me, it's like the the best part is like seeing how they use it. 
So like having these instruments sort of as platform for, like you said, like that question, what does what does sound sound like in the future? What does music sound like in the future? And it sounds like inviting people into this future world, you're really you're asking them to take the present more seriously. Is that right? In a way, it's like our, the goal is like when you walk through those doors, you're walking into a world that is on the line between fantasy and reality. So the fantasy part is sort of like the way I get you to sort of investigate more because, you know, you're having fun with it. It feels like you're walking into the new Harry Potter amusement park in Disney World. But then it's like it tackles these issues that come up in your daily life, like gentrification or displacement that's happening around us. So it's like it goes back and forth. It's in like present time. But it's like you're living in the future. So for me, it's, it's a great way to have those those ideas sort of pop up because some of the questions are really up in the air for me, too. So like this is more of a, an exploratory sort of exhibit for me because it's really new. That sounds so exciting. Well, Thomas and Venus, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Denver artist Thomas Evans, also known as Detour, and Venus Cruz. The Five Pointers exhibit runs through December 6th at Denver's Red Line Art Gallery. Now, from music of the future to an artist deeply rooted in the past, Virginia native Keller Williams is no stranger to Colorado audiences. He's frequently toured through the state since the 90s. Fans often refer to Williams as a one-man jam band, and the multi-instrumentalist has called his own sound ADM, as in acoustic dance music. On Saturday, Williams will bring his annual Thanks for Grass Giving show to the West for the first time, performing at the Ogden Theater in Denver. And today, he releases his new album, Speed, a collection of cover songs in his own high-energy bluegrass style. See if you can spot this one. will be living La Vida Loca when he's joined by Colorado friends from String Cheese Incident and Leftover Salmon for his annual Thanks for Grass Giving show Saturday night, making its Western debut at the Ogden Theater in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News.